I invite you to find in your pew Bible, the Bible you brought with you, uh, your phone app, your device, the second chapter, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, from where we hear these words, listen for the word of the Lord. If then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not, on, not to your own interests, but to the interests of others, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. One of the strangest stories from my childhood happened at Rock City. How many of you know about Rock City? See Rock City. You know Rock City? It's the billboards that, that turned into this commercial marketing giant. You know, the, the red sides, the black rooftop, and the white letters that read what? See Rock City. You got it. It's brilliant. Uh, I was there back in July, and I was overlooking the seven states from Lookout Mountain, a few miles outside of Chattanooga, and the panoramic view, the rock formations are still so stunning uh, to me, but there was a memory that sort of swelled up. I'd nearly forgotten about it until being back at, at Rock City, and it was an encounter that my dad, my brother, and I had with a complete stranger. First as a child, and now as an adult, I have to say that the fairyland caverns, the mother goose village, the gnome things, the troll, they totally creep me out. I just, I can't. So to all of you who love those dioramas, more power to you. But what I am attracted to are the parts of the park like uh, Fat Man Squeeze and Needle's Eye and Lover's Leap. I marveled at them years ago. They were very nostalgic for me just a few weeks ago. Well, uh, my dad, my brother, and I, we'd finished our tour, just the three of us, and we were about to exit the park, and dad noticed a man struggling a little bit. And the man was blind. So dad approached him and asked if he needed some help. And the man said he wanted to experience the park, even though he couldn't see it, and asked if dad would guide him through the park and describe everything that he was seeing in rich detail so the man could, could hear it. Uh, so here's dad with two young boys. And I, I suppose in hindsight, it was a teaching moment, uh, but not exactly ideal. We were ready to go and we were hungry. We were always hungry, though, so that didn't really matter. But, but there was a person in need, so dad did what dad does. He helped. The man had a Jesus look to him, as best I can recall, meaning I think he could have been living in the Great Smoky Mountains by the way he looked and smelled. Uh, so how could any good Bible-thumping Christian refuse to help a Jesus stranger? I mean, we know the good book, right? 
So back into the park we went, avoiding the singing gnomes, but following the contours of the landscape. Dad, holding the man's elbow at times, described it all to the man with uh, impeccable description, the depths of the crevices, the heights of the rocks, the jagged versus the smooth, the wet moss, the dry moss, the shades of green, the bends and the dips in the pathway, the tall trees, the short trees, the firs, the fruit-bearing trees. It was all there. It was beautiful. My brother and I, we were tiring quite quickly, but we hung in there while Dad played Good Samaritan. And then it happened. I don't know if we made it all the way back up to the lookout or to Lover's Leap, but the man turns to Dad and he, he squares up and he smiles and he starts snickering and says, blind man's bluff, and he walks down the hill and gets in his car and he drives off. <laughs> and I, my brother and I, we helped my dad pick his jaw up off the, you know, the, the pavers. And before I could say what just happened, I think I said something really ingenious like, Dad, did you heal him? <laughs> <laughs> You know, what just happened? Uh, I wish my dad, in hindsight, had said, yeah, you didn't know that I had that superpower, right? My brother and I, we didn't understand. We didn't understand why someone who looked like Jesus would impersonate a blind man to someone who was trying to imitate Jesus by helping out a blind man. And so that's, that memory has, has stayed with me all these years. And then I read Paul's great hymn, the Christ hymn. And I heard Paul's words, and I, I thought about what is the difference between being an impersonator and an imitator? Do you hear the difference? Uh, Gandhi once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Ooh, ouch. Impersonators will go through great lengths to make someone believe they are someone they are not, like the blind, not-so-blind Jesus man. Imitators, they scratch and claw, sacrifice and labor to live up to being, to becoming the type person whom they admire. Impersonators are, are more like a pane of glass. Imitators are a reflective mirror. And I've wondered this week if, if it's possible not to imitate someone. Do we all look up to someone? like an older sibling whose own struggles let us know what to avoid and he or she will protect us from our own social pressures, or like a grandmother whose laughter and vibrancy and zeal inspires a family, or a coach who could easily, easily tear down a player but chooses to teach tough love through encouragement. Spiritual giants in the church whose, whose journey of discipleship, just by being present, it, it mentors us. And, and coming to mind this week, I've thought about John and Mary Ellen Bullard. I've thought about, thought, thought about Paul and Louise Duffy and, and how they all influenced my life, my journey. I suppose deep down we all know that we can work as hard as we want to, as hard as possible, and we'll still fall short of this perceived pedestal perfection we find in others whom we're trying to imitate. It's true professionally, relationally, even spiritually. And it's okay not to be as perfect as we'd like to be, by the way. But I'm not sure Paul is interested in perfection at this point as he's pastoring new churches as much as he prefers honesty about who Christ is, who we are, and who we are not, and the choices that we will make to become more like Christ. And so what Paul does is he reminds the, the church that we're not called to be impersonators of Jesus. We're called to imitate Jesus, to reflect who he is, to stay close to his teachings and his ethics, 
his actions if we want to become like him. Many scholars believe that the church in Philippi was a relatively healthy church. Paul was not writing to a church in, in crisis, like a theological crisis or a sociopolitical uh, crisis, like the churches in the region of Galatia or the church in, in Corinth that had its challenges. But, but Paul um, said something last week in, at the early part of this week's readings that indicates that, that maybe he was foreseeing division coming or the division had begin, begun to creep in. And so he pleaded with the church in this sort of litany, strive toward being one mind, one spirit, one together for the gospel of faith. An impersonator would, would play the part of that. Casual Christianity, going through the motions. But an imitator, well, that person and that church would move heaven and earth to work toward unity, like Christ, who laid down his life for the church to be as one as he and the Father are one. I hope you have your, your finger held on Philippians chapter 2 in your Bible. You can pull it back up real quickly because the second chapter of Philippians, it ranks, it ranks among the finest literature you'll ever read in the entire Bible, and it's a hymn. Uh, if you have all of that still open, I hope you'll look at how the form of chapter 2 changes from strophic form to poetic form, like verse form. You see, see how that works? We believe that that uh, this, this letter was written to the church in Philippi, and it was meant to be read all the way through. It wasn't until many, uh, many centuries later that we had chapters and verses like we have in our Bible now. So the letter would just flow naturally and would be read in, in totality. And Paul does something quite brilliant. He, it, was, it would have been read in worship. And so Paul, uh, he inserts a hymn. We've got to sing, right? Always have to sing. Paul wrote a hymn to the church in Philippi, and what we believe is that the church in Philippi was familiar with this hymn. They understood it. They knew it. The prelude to this Christ hymn, as it's called, the prelude to that hymn says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Whew, maybe we just need to stop right there for the day. Except he goes on to say, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Do not look at your own interests first, but at the interests of others and, and have the same mind. Imitate Christ who, music starts playing, here comes the hymn, emptied himself. Imitate Christ who emptied himself. Imitate emptiness. Empty yourself of yourself when your brothers and sisters and even impersonating strange people need something that they cannot provide for themselves. Empty yourself. Barbara Brown Taylor says this hymn, it says what we all want to say. Most hymns do that anyway, though, don't they? They say what, what we want to say. And that's why we need the poets and the mystics among us to keep writing, by the way. This hymn says what we want to say, but it's not what many of us want to hear. Imitate Christ who was killed for being too radically inclusive and talking about a new kind of kingdom. Imitate Christ who was more interested in writing food insecurities than he was writing doctrine. Imitate Christ who was concerned with comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Whew. Imitate Christ who always sided with justice among the least 
the last, the lost, and the lonely, and imitate Christ who would go, forego a meal so that others can eat. Imitate Christ who spoke up and spoke out and spoke forward the good news of God by saying he had been anointed to proclaim the good news, to proclaim freedom to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and the oppressed free. Imitate Christ by being authentically who you are, not impersonating some construct of who you think others think you are or want you to be. Be who Christ says you are. Imitating the passion of Christ. And passion, by the way, means suffering. Imitating the passion of Christ is this process of of self-emptying. But I believe that before we can self-empty in the way that Paul and, and Christ did, we must first self-empty some of our own stuff. To pour out, one must be full. That's how it works. And we're all full of whatever we let in. The challenge is sometimes we let the wrong stuff in and there's not room for the right stuff. What needs emptying in so many lives are the canisters of confusion about what it means to be the church. What needs emptying are the bends of bitterness toward people who are your brothers and sisters by baptism. What needs emptying are the hearts of hate and haranguing when things don't go our way. And what needs emptying in our life, what needs emptying in our life so that we can truly begin pouring ourselves out like Christ did? This hymn is referred to as as kenosis, and that word just simply means emptying. And and that phrase, that that theological phrase, it's it's part of a paradox. Two things that are laid alongside in tension with one another. In this case, Christ is 100% human and 100% divine. And it's smashed in there together. This paradox propounds that although he was in the form of God, he emptied himself and he died. This, This paradox, interestingly enough, it's... It's kind of like the the title itself, Joyful Obedience. What is joyful about being obedient? Well, it's in that moment that we find the freedom that we we have in the Spirit. But this this paradox is not original to Philippians. We look back at the conversations from our our Jewish brothers and, and sisters who have been talking about this a long time. It's foundational to Judaism, recalling the first kenotic event. That's creation that when out of a deep love for humanity, God entrusted all of creation to us. God could have easily said, it's all good, but I'm going to keep the power. And I'm going to keep it and retain it and, and lord it over. But he didn't. He just poured himself out. And so all that is acted and every word spoken and every breath breathed that created life in Genesis, it's for others. Not for God's own self. That's how creation and recreation and, and salvation are God's free gifts to the world. And through Christ, Christ could have easily lorded power over the religious establishment, over Rome, but he didn't. He poured himself out. He could have easily grasped the power that was his by his divine nature, but he chose to become powerless. The strange thing it is to talk about God emptying himself and dying so that others might live. There's a tension there in this hymn. There's a tension in our hearts today because it's so easy, so much easier to impersonate than it is to imitate. Self-emptying, God's self-emptying, it's not a divestment of of God's divinity any more than self-imitating is some kind of impersonation attempt to become something we cannot. Self-emptying, 
is the full expression of who God is and what God chooses and how big God loves. And self-emptying for us is a reflection and an imitation of that same expression to love big. To imitate Christ is to be in solidarity with humanity, the suffering of humanity even, where in that moment we will find freedom in our joy-filled obedience. So I suppose the question is, can the world see Christ at work in us or reflected through us? Imitation is not about complacency or or status quo, or any of the superficialities we're told to believe about the church. When, when the stats came out just a couple of years ago, that for the first time in American history, there's more people not attending church than, than those who are attending church, I thought, why? What have we watered down so much that the message of Christ has been lost? When did the church cease to imitate Christ and decided to impersonate something? Was this a sudden event? Was it a slow erosion? How did this happen? I can't not be excited about the good news of Jesus Christ and the grace that's all around us. What's happened? The last time I checked, the church, the church is needed the most when injustices prevail and when communities need space for hard conversations and when wars and rumors of war occur, and when the world is moving faster than than we have answers, like with artificial intelligence and genetic engineering, what do we do with that? We empty ourselves, as Christ would, because these are the precise time the world needs a church to do that. And honestly, this hymn, it ought to terrify us a little bit. As beautiful as it is, and most of us have it committed to memory, it terrifies us because of its call on our lives to not compromise who we claim to be. It terrifies us. And how we will work out all of this with fear and trembling. How many of of us become more concerned with pressing sin on our opinions than sharing common missional mindedness with others, being of one mind and of one heart and of one mission? How often do we who wear the robes and and the stoles become obsessed with power and position rather than making ourselves nothing? This hymn terrifies us because it will cause our kingdoms to topple, the ones that we create for ourselves. When we hear things like the last will be first and the first will be last, when, when those who are blessed in the eyes of Christ are the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the poor, not, not the ones who are fed and quenched and fully clothed and We're terrified to imitate Christ because it might might just mean that we change our way of living. It might change our politics. It might change the way that we spend money and prioritize it. It might change the way that we view our time, not as ours, but as this precious gift that God has given us to give back to the church, to pour ourselves out. We're terrified to be imitators of this kind of Christ because Christ tends to change seating charts and expectations for how we retaliate or don't retaliate to the world's violence, not by trying to win the battle through more violence of words or deeds, but by turning swords into plowshares and spears into pruning forks so that we'll all stop fighting one another. 
and we'll plant some crops together and we'll get back to owning the original farm-to-table plan for healing communities one life at a time. That's God's plan for salvation. But we don't want to imitate that because our kingdoms, they work by regime changes and overthrowing government and missiles and gossiping about others to feel superior and tearing down leaders. There's countless ways to feel dominant in this world, and yet Jesus the Christ emptied himself of all of that. Jesus emptied himself. And all for this, for one reason, that God's kingdom is different from our kingdom's. Because Jesus could have so easily won the battle over violence and competing values, he could have cashed out and made off really well by the world's standards. But he emptied himself. And he became a slave, obedient to death, even death on a cross. This hymn, our Christ in this hymn, it's calling us home today, home to his kingdom. It's calling us to what actually matters in this world and what matters to God, like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, like hygiene kits and snack kits for the homeless in just a few minutes, like capturing hopes and dreams for a church on a mission at the dawning of 200 years together. King Jesus is calling us to empty ourselves. And he's calling us from the bellies of hungry children and from the cries of motherless children and from the wounds of those who have been abused and from the whimpers of grieving families. He's calling us from the homes of the lonely and from the silence and the violence of our streets. King Jesus is calling us to empty ourselves, to imitate, not to impersonate, to demonstrate God's great love for all humanity. He emptied himself. Will we?